and turn to Matthew chapter 22. And in Matthew chapter 22, we're finishing up, beginning to finish up a little bit, rounding together this whole idea of grace, conflicted by grace. Now, most of what we've talked about in this series of messages is how we're conflicted over the, maybe the law versus grace or over the word of God and certain standards that we need to be living by and over things like uh, holding grudges and forgiveness. And it's, it's really grace that's given to us. But let me ask you, if grace, as we've defined it, is God's undeserved favor toward us, if it's God's generosity, then isn't it true that anything that we have comes from God? So if that's true, how can we really trust God to give it to us? With all the trials that we go through, all the decisions, some people making a decision about, well, should I go to this school? Is God going to provide that school? What about retirement? Is my retirement going to, the funds going to run out before my life? I mean, how, how can I really trust God with everything in my life and trust his hand of grace in my life? Do I, do I need to participate somehow? Do I need to help him out a little bit? Can I really do that? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, God told this to Paul. The Apostle Paul, my grace, God says, is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more and gladly for my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. And what he's really trying to tell Paul is this. Look, you just rest in me. You rely on my power, not yourself, and I'm going to give you my grace. But can we really count on that. Is that really enough for us? Again, we've looked at the doctrine of grace and it's multifaceted. In fact, I'm going to share with you something toward the end of this message of what God has taught me. Uh, Even this week, as we've been studying, I've been studying God's word in this passage. But as we're looking at this, we're we're thinking to ourselves, well, God, you know, I want your hand of favor on my life. I want your blessings on my life. But do I have to earn it? Do I have, don't I have to do this and this and this? Where does all that cut off? And just simply, I just trust you during the trials and the sufferings and even the good stuff of my life that I won't be filled up with myself when everything goes well. How can I really trust in your grace? Well, as we open to Matthew chapter 22, we pick up a story here of Jesus. We've been going through the book of Matthew. And we, we've turned a corner here in the last few weeks because this is the last week of Jesus's life. Before this, he was, really dis- he was really discouraging people from revealing who he was. And because that's gonna put pressure on his enemies to nail him to a cross maybe a little bit early. So he's coming into Jerusalem now, and during these last seven days of his life, he's really confronting the two major groups of people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he's confronting them, letting him know who he is, and therefore he's pretty much saying, look, either crown me as king or kill me. And they took the killing. So as we look at this, we find out, we learn something new from his grace, and it comes really from three questions. First of all, beginning in verse 23, they, they talk about the resurrection and who's, and a, and a question about the, the, uh, the resurrection. Verse 36 is the second question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And then in verse 42, the third question, who is the son of man anyway? Who do you believe the Christ is? Which is a huge question. And so as we look at this, I want us to see in kind of in reverse, thinking about things a little bit in reverse, 
the permanence of grace, the practice of grace, and then the power of grace. What do we depend on? What do we look at in our life and in the word of God and what has happened in the past even and what's gonna happen in the future to assure us that God is there, God is loving us, God cares about us, and he's gonna pour out his grace to us. Look, first of all, at the permanence of his grace. Beginning in verse 23, we find the same day, the Sadducees. Now, this is the same day as, as the parables. We just came out of three parables, three illustrative stories, illustrative stories that talk about the Jewish leaders killing the prophets of old, and now they're going to kill Jesus. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees know Jesus is talking about him, and so they immediately try to trap him. Keep in mind, in another gospel, right before all this happened, just a few days before, this happened, this conversation happened, Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. And the Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural. In fact, it says the same day Sadducees came to him. Who were these Sadducees? Well, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'm here all week. Um, we're, uh, but that's how you can remember it. They were the, the sect that was very small. They were very liberal in their theology, and they were pro-Roman. And these Jewish leaders felt like there was no resurrection, there is no supernatural. They just sort of took things apart from that and say, you know, just kind of live a religious life. Well, these guys were saying, look, there is no resurrection, but we just saw a resurrection. We just saw John, or rather Lazarus being in the dead, being, being in the grave for four days, being dead for four days and raised from the dead. We can't explain it, so let us trap you, Jesus, right in front of everybody. And so here's what they ask. Saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Then he says, now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left, his wife uh, was left to his brother. And so to the second and third, and down to the seventh, and after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her as a wife. But Jesus answered, you are wrong. I mean, flat out, you are wrong. It's a rebuke because you know neither the scriptures that they claim to know because they just didn't have the proper interpretation at all, nor do you know the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now notice it doesn't say we're our angels. It says we're like them in the fact that we don't marry. And as far as the resurrection of the dead, have you not read and what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. And the crowd heard it. They were astonished at his teaching. Now, they could have been astonished for many, many reasons. One, he took on the Sadducees and answered a question and all of a sudden turned everything on them. They were pretty astonished by the, the wisdom of it all. But this, the background of this happened in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And the law was by Moses, Moses permitted that if a man dies, his widow would then uh, go to his brother and he would marry her in order to, for, to take care of her. There was no social security back then, no death benefit and life insurance. It was just something they did in order to take care of the widow and the offspring of the brother. 
Now, this was permitted by Moses, but Jesus said, look, you know, uh, and they trapped him. What about we married seven times? Who gets her in the resurrection? And he says, you don't understand, there is no marriage in heaven. Now, for some of you that have never been married, that is bad news for you. I know, I know. But some of you that are married, maybe, maybe not so, so bad, I don't know. You know, I'm not going to, this is not a marriage counseling message. I'm not going to get into that. But what are the, think about it for just a minute. What are the reasons for marriage? First of all, to complete one another. Well, once you get to heaven, you're going to be completing Christ. To propagate the human race, no reason to do that anymore. Not only that, but a companionship. Well, you're going to have companionship with Jesus in heaven, but also one another, the whole church. The beauty also of the relationship to Christ really symbolizes Christ's relationship to the church. Well, we don't need that anymore. You don't need the symbol when you have the real thing. And so the earthly needs for marriage are not going to be there. But people think, well, then it's going to be bad. Man, it's going to be bad. It's none of this, none of that. And, you know, I don't have that companion. I don't have that one that's, you know, that's just precious. Listen to me very carefully. As I said last week, heaven is better than anything else on earth. I mean, it has to be. Why in the world would God put a reward out there for heaven by receiving Jesus Christ into your heart, having Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, and you get to heaven? And, and again, all, all we did is, we said last week, play a harp. And a lot of you don't like harps. You know, and all we do is sing in a choir. And some of you don't, I mean, y'all are really singing today, by the way. Let me just compliment you, all right? You're really doing well today, but some days you just come up, and I don't feel like singing. You know, I don't even sing by the radio. So what is heaven like? Well, I shared a couple of verses with you last week. Let me add to that. Romans 8, 18 says, for I consider that the, pre- the, the sufferings, Paul says, of this present time are not worthy compared, to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. Heaven's gonna be so much better. You're not gonna have marriage. You're gonna have something else. We're gonna be, we're gonna be so close to everyone around us. Heaven is going to be heaven. Now, let me illustrate it in this way. I saw a movie years ago, and I can't re- for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it, but it had to do with a baby uh, being born, and then, you know, he's talking the whole movie, whether he's talking in the womb. I think it's Bruce Willis's voice, which is frightening, you know, in itself. But anyway, the baby's in, in the womb. I, I think this was the movie. And uh, he's talking, oh, well, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. And all of a sudden, he's, he's born. And what happens? The first thing that happens when a baby's born, what do they do? They cry. I mean, they left this warmth of the womb for the last nine months, and all of a sudden now, they're in a whole new world. It's different, but it's better. You say, well, man, I know life's pretty rough. Listen, I don't care how rough your life is. It's better than spending 90 years in the womb. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't care who you are. And I don't care who you are in this life, how great your life is, how perfect you think your life is, it's gonna be better in heaven. We're going to go to a whole new dimension, a whole new realm of life when we get to heaven, just like even more so when a baby is born. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. And as Jesus is looking at this, he's saying, look, I'm not a God of the dead. This is my favorite part of this passage. Verse 32, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. He's always present with us. You know, one of the saddest things in life is, is to talk about someone in the past tense. Go into a home, you see a picture there of someone, maybe it's even black and white. Well, who is this? Oh, that was my dad. He was a great guy. 
was, was, was. Saddest thing. God never talks to us, talks about us in that light. He's always talking about us in the present. He is a God of the present right now. And all of this, in verse 31, he talks about the resurrection. They're talking about the resurrection all the way through. This is something that's going to happen within just a week, or just a few days, that Jesus Christ would rise from the dead. And the resurrection is the greatest thing. It is the foundational principle of the entire New Testament. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he, Paul says this, Jesus says this, this proves that what he did on the cross was for a purpose. And that purpose was to die on the cross for our sins, to take our place, to take our sins away, to take us to a place where we're forgiven of everything that we've ever done. So yeah, but how do you know Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Well, that's another message in Resur Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, I usually preach on that. But let me just say this. There's a fellow by the name of Lee Strobel, reporter for the Chicago Tribune of old, and he wrote a book called Case for Christ. His wife had become a Christian. He, he was an atheist, and he felt like, oh, the, she's, she's going down the tubes. There's just no way I'm going to be able to, i got to help her in some way, help her to see the light that Christianity is just a false religion. And all religions are just, as Mark said, the opiate of the people. So he went about on the side, going all over the country, as a matter of fact, talking to people, trying to disprove the resurrection. He couldn't do it, and he eventually became a Christian. Same thing happened to Josh McDowell in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Still, they're both still living for Jesus today. People have over and over and over again tried to disprove the resurrection and cannot. So what does that mean? That means Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's what Christianity is all about. That means we are going to rise from the dead as well. That means we are going to be going to heaven as well. That means we are a child of God because we've received the, the resurrected Christ who died on the cross for our sins into our heart and our life has been changed. So what does that mean? I love what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8. One of my favorite passages when it says, what then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is he who justifies. Who is, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding. That means he's praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? It is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We're persecuted out in the world. But he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all of his creation will be able to separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. My goodness, he says, look, if I'm going to die on the cross for your sins, I'm going to give you everything else. If I died so you can be reconciled to God, you can trust my grace, everything else. If God be for us, who can be against us? If he's going to, he says, he not, did not spare his own son, verse 32, but gave him up for us all. Will he not, not also graciously give you all things? Heaven 
is going to be great. But this life is an evidence of what God has done in our life and what God wants to do in our life. A better world is coming. But the world right now shows us that God wants to give you his favor, his blessing, his grace. He's anxious to do that. You say, well, that's happened 2,000 years ago, but what about today? Well, I'll tell you something else Jesus talks about here. And beginning in verse, um, beginning in verse 34, another man comes to him from the Pharisees, and we see the practice of grace. You see, not only do we look at something from the past that affects us right now in salvation, but here's the thing. We know that God will give us his grace, not only because he's already given it to us, but that grace has already changed our life. Notice what it says in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard they had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now, who are the Pharisees? They're the opposite of the Sadducees. They are more, much more legalistic. They go by not only the law, but a lot of laws added to that. And they were the ones that say, I, I want to save myself by being righteous on my own. How did these two people ever get together? Groups, Sadducees and the Pharisees, just being opposite conservatives and liberals. I can tell you how they got together. Have you ever heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? They got together because they had something in common. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. And so they came to him with another question. And this question was a little bit more sincere. It came from a lawyer. It came and he asked the teacher something very important. Verse 36, which is the great, the great commandment of the law? So why do you think he was sincere? Well, he was trying to trap Jesus, but on the other hand, being the kind of guy he was, being a lawyer, he knew there were 613 laws in the Old Testament. That's not even counting the stuff they'd added. 613 laws, and you're talking, Jesus, about heaven, so could you pare this down for me a little bit? You know, I can't go and obey all 613. Could you give me a couple of them? If I, if I just do this, I can work my way to heaven? Can you pare it down a little bit? Now, Jesus would have been playing into a trap if he would have said, well, first of all, don't steal or don't, don't lie, don't murder. He didn't look at the big 10 commandments. What he did was summarize the 10 commandments in two. The first one he took from Deuteronomy, the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible, in chapter six and verse five. It's called by the Jewish people the Shema, because it's more, it's more recited, this passage, uh, verses uh, five and following, are really recited by Jewish people, sometimes uh, Orthodox Jews, every day. So this is what it says in verse five. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, what does he say in verse 37? He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. He's saying to them, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put everything into two capsules. First of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, or basically in this version, all your mind. And he says this, the first four commandments are about just that. The first four commandments, love the Lord your God, don't put any gods before God, don't worship any idols, uh, you know, worship God. And uh, of course, you know, don't use the Lord's God, God's name in vain and worship on, on the Sabbath. He's talking about these first four things. And he says, this is the greatest commandment. Put Jesus Christ on the throne of your life. 
Take your hands off your own life and allow God to do something because you're loving him more than anything else. But then he says about the last six commandments, he takes it from Leviticus, the third book of the Old Testament. Chapter 19, he says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so Jesus says, the second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament. Because the second group, the second group of six commandments that talk about honoring your father and your mother, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't covet, those kind of things. He said it can all be centered around one thing, love your neighbor as yourself, assuming you love yourself. Just as, not a command, certainly, but assumption. To love your neighbor as you do yourself. How do you do that? I'm telling, I believe that was very, very, very difficult. Now, let me just say, I'll put myself out there. It's impossible in the Old Testament. They're always a struggle. You can see it. Read the book of Judges. They, the whole nation fell into sin seven different times, just in one book. Very, very difficult to do because you're trying to do something that's a law. You're trying to do a checklist of some type. It's not coming from the inside. It's not coming from the heart. The Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence because from it flow the issues of life. So the heart is the causal core of who you are. It doesn't come from the heart. How does it come from the heart? The heart has to be renewed. It has to be ignited. It has to be born again, as the Bible would say. How? Because the very moment I received Jesus into my heart, the Holy Spirit came into my heart, came into your heart, and the Bible says in Romans 5, 5, it says that the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit who's given to us. He causes the love. He causes us to want grace. And the law, love can be defined, defines really what the law means. And the law defines not only what it means to be loving, but love defines what it means to, to obey the law. It goes both ways. Somebody says, well, now, you know, that's, Pastor, I'll have to disagree with you there because uh, I don't think I need God to love people. I mean, I love people. Okay, have you ever heard this one before? I just can't live without her. I just can't live without my wife. I. I just can't bear to see my child cry. I have to give them some. That didn't apply to grandparents, by the way. Grandparents are exempt from that. I mean, I, I'm not responsible for raising my grandkids, right? But if you have to be loved, you can't lead. If you have to be loved, you can't lead. And so here's some, a parent being overindulgent with their child. Why? They have to be loved. Most of what, in fact, all of what we do, we can almost, we can really always come back to ourselves and say, I love this and I need this for me, for me. It's only when God's heart, your heart is changed by the heart of God that you can really love and give grace. But here's the thing, I can believe today that God can give me his grace because Grace has changed my own heart. I know what it's like to be forgiven. I know what it's like to struggle and forgive someone else. 
I know what it's like to struggle with Jesus Christ being on the throne and not on the throne of my life and a, a struggle with it every day to take my hands off my own life. We understand the grace of God. It's happened to us already. And because of that, we understand that grace can be and should be sufficient for us. But then, doesn't this all really depend on Jesus? You know, we're saying about the name of Jesus today, and it really does depend all on him. You see, this whole thing about Christianity depends on three things. A man, Jesus Christ, the God-man. An event, the resurrection. Thirdly, a book. A book. He says, look, he says in this first passage, you don't understand the scriptures and the power of God. Here's what I found. Somebody asked me the question, well, in your earlier days, did you struggle with Christianity? Of course I did. I mean, you ask yourself some tough questions and you're going to struggle. Where, where does it come out? I'll tell you where it comes out. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that means that he died on the cross for me. If he died on the cross for me, that means he wants a personal relationship with me. If he wants a personal relationship with me, he's going to give me a guide. I mean, a kingdom has rules, right? A kingdom has guides. Somebody says, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. You heard that before? I'm a Christ follower. Where's Jesus going? Where's he going? Have you ever thought about that? Well, I'm a Christ follower. Where's he going? Well, I don't have any idea. I do. I have an idea. It's found right here in this book. I know where he's going. And you can know where he's going to. And it comes down to that person of Christ. Not just the written word, but the living word. Look at the power of his grace as we look at this final passage. It says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Isn't that the big question, who is Jesus? He said to them, how is it that then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? So this Jesus was not only his son, but he was above him, right? And he said, and, and the Lord said to the Lord, or, or the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my hand until I make your enemies under your feet. And then David calls him Lord. How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day forward, anyone dare ask him any more questions. Well, he just had an answer for everything. And this is the question. Who is Now, he's coming from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where it says that the throne of David will be there forever and ever through the Messiah. And as he was writing, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. They would have to see him as the son of David, as the king, the king of the Jews. And he was saying that to them. Jesus is the king. king. Jesus is the Christ. You can trust him because of who he is. He has the grace. I love what John MacArthur says when he says, Jesus shares with, with God all the attributes of omnipotence. That is, he's all-powerful. He is the creator, the controller of the heavens and the earth and all its creatures. He is the provider of food, the healer of the sick, the raiser of the dead, the forgiver of sin, the giver of eternal life, and the judge of all men's and angels. Jesus shares with God all the attributes of omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere at the same time. When he says, whoever two or three are gathered together in my name, he declared, there I am in their midst. Jesus shares with God the attributes 
of omniscience. That is, he knows everything. He knew what his disciples were thinking and what his enemies were thinking. When it says, he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man or he himself because he knew the heart of man. Jesus knows it all because he's God in the flesh. We can receive his blessings. Now, the problem is we're still concerned about the self. I mean, we really are. And and sometimes it sneaks up on us like it maybe did me this week. Ernest Hemingway, who is a great novelist, died by self-inflicted wound um, and depression at the age of 65. And right before he died, he said the worst death for anyone is to love the center of his being, the thing he really is. Retirement, he says, is the filthiest word in the language. Whether by choice or by fate to retire from what you do and what you do makes, makes you what you are, is to back up into the grave. You say, wow, that was wise. No, that was foolish. It was a foolish statement. Because what he's saying is, you are what you do. And if you cease to do what you are, then you lose your purpose in life. There's a quarterback for one of the college teams, uh, University of Clemson. I'm not a big Clemson fan, so I can say this, right? And nobody get mad at me for being a Gator fan, Seminole fan, Hurricane fan, Bulldog fan, uh, or anything. (laughs) UCF Knights fan. But the Clemson quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, is out of Cartersville, Georgia. And he was interviewed last year, and right after the championship game, and Clemson won that game, and they said, you know, you're a freshman, you're 18 years old. How in the world do you have this calmness throughout uh, all, the, all these games? He says, very quickly, he said, I just don't get my identity from being a quarterback. I get my identity in Jesus Christ. Isn't that where our identity needs to come from? What do you think? And when that happens, it frees you up in so many ways. I was uh, talking to one of the a pastor friends who's going to be coming to preach for us in somewhat in the future. And I was just, he just popped in my head as I was kind of going through the calendar in my head, driving down the road. And he said something about me I thought was, uh, was nice at the time, but now I'm thinking about it. You know, he said, man, you, you are, uh, you are such a tenacious guy. I mean, Wow, you know, you are, you just stick to it. You're, you're, you know, you don't, you don't leave. You, you live with your decisions. And what he was saying was, you're a hard guy to run off. And I'm thinking, wow, that's my legacy. That's going to be my, I like my legacy 10, 15 years ago, you know, before the recession. And this song was on the radio at the time. And I'd never really listened to the words. Never. It's a song by Casting Crowns. And uh, I'm going to make a long story short by saying, this is the words, the only words that I heard at the end of the song. He said, but Jesus is the only name to remember. And I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. Now that runs counter to everything that I've ever read in every leadership book. Man, you got to make a name, not only a name for yourself, make sure your, your family's proud of you. Make sure you leave a good name. Now, the Bible says that, and I want to leave a good name. I want my kids to be proud of me. I want my wife to be proud of me. But boy, beyond that, three, four generations from now, did you know no one is going to remember you? 
Nobody's going to remember you. One of the great pastors of all time, W.A. Criswell, First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. Anybody remember him? Raise your hand if you remember him. You've heard of his name before. W.A. Criswell. Adrian Rogers. He's still on TV after 20 years, you know, being dead. He's still on TV. Only a few. You know, these were the, these, I mean, my goodness, they were bigger than life. Nobody's going to remember. Only Jesus. And if you believe in only Jesus, you shouldn't care. And if you don't care, then you're going to look at life from a different point of view. It's not how much money you're going to make, how, how famous you're going to be, how, how well-liked you're going to be, how, what kind of reputation you're going to have, if you're going to be successful. Oh, I'm just so successful, you know. Been on the cover of magazines. I don't know. I mean, it's just when you put all that aside, get your identity in Jesus Christ, then God, you know, I really can trust in your grace. Because you know what's better, best for me. And it doesn't matter what other people look at me. As long, as long as I'm following you, I can always say, only Jesus. And you say, well, you know, your mission statement, our mission statement as a church, building lives that matter by teaching people to love Jesus, know Jesus, trust Jesus, follow Jesus. Every grade level is a little different. And that's our mission say. That's what we do every day as a church. Say, so, wow, you know, I guess you're just going to have to maybe just pay attention to the New Testament because you can't really find Jesus maybe in the Old Testament. But here's the thing. As one African-American preacher said, you can find Jesus on every page of the Bible. You can find Jesus in every place. It's all about him. All about him. For example, in the book of Genesis, the Bible says he's the sacrificial lamb. In the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, Passover lamb. In the book of Leviticus, he's the high priest. In the book of Numbers, he's a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In the book of Deuteronomy, we find he's the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he's the lawgiver. And in Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. We can find him in Samuel as the trusted prophet. Kings and Chronicles, we're looking at him as the reigning king. Then in the book of Ezra, a faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, the builder, rebuild. I love this, the rebuilder of our broken walls. Isn't that great? In the book of Esther, he's our lawyer. In Job, the day spring on, on high. In the book of Psalms, he's the Lord, our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. In Song of Solomon, we find he's the lover and the bridegroom of the church. We can find Isaiah, the prince of peace, in Jeremiah and Lamentations, the righteous branch and weeping prophet, and Ezekiel, the deliverer, and Daniel. And Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fiery furnace. Amen? And Hosea, he's a bridegroom married to a backslider. In Joel, the baptizer of the Holy Spirit and with fire. In Amos, he's the burden bearer. In Obadiah, the mighty savior. We find in Jonah, he's the great missionary. Then in Micah, the messenger with beautiful feet carrying the gospel of peace to us. In Nahum, the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, the evangelist crying out for revival. In Zephaniah, the restored. In Haggai, the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, the merciful father. And in Malachi, the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. That's in the Old Testament. The New Testament's easier to see. 
We find in Matthew, he's the king. In, Matthew, in Mark, he's the servant. In Luke, he's the son of man. And John, he's the son of God. And the book of Acts, he's our great missionary. In the book of Romans, he's our justifier. In Corinthians, he's the giver of gifts. And then in Galatians, he's the one that sets us free. In Ephesians, he's Christ, our riches. In Philippians, the joy of our lives. In Colossians, the fullness of Godhead bodily. In Thessalonians, he's the coming king. In First and Second Timothy, he's the mediator between God and man. In Titus, he's our faithful pastor. In Philemon, the friend that sticks closer than a brother. In Hebrews, he's the blood. Listen, he's the blood that washes my sins away. Man, you ought to give God a round of applause for that one. And James, he's the great physician, and, and Peter, first and second Peter, he's the chief shepherd. And the epistles of John, he's the everlasting love. In Jude, he's the one coming down with 10,000 saints. And in the book of Revelation, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Every page of the Bible, you can find the name of Jesus. You can trust him. He'll never let you down. He'll never let you down as you put Jesus on the throne Take your hands off your own life. Trust him with your life. He'll, he's always faithful. He'll never let you down. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.